2: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez.
3: The world was a little simpler a little more magical, there were more heroes, more things to, to think about, and Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my
4: heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifschitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts. From the Soviet Union, and despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style.
3: You know, I had older brothers, so I, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore, and, and uh, I I'd never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant.
4: And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene, the European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the Army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain, skinny ties were in vogue.
3: In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men and it was a very dead industry. And here I came along and I had a sports car and I come with a tweed jacket and I zip into my car with bag of ties and I go to the stores around the the area. And I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in.
4: Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building. But he was investing in himself, his image, his brand. Something his company would make possible for everyday Americans, too. Helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style of Wall Street bankers. Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans.
3: I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're gonna be successful, hoping that we're gonna be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the you know. So I was inspired by those worlds. You know, I was inspired the thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin. That was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream you know, in the reality of, you know, of, uh, I love stone houses, you know, I love Persian rugs, I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And I think I, in terms of what I was doing is, I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket, here's a jacket, my shoulders come out here now, and and buy it now because it's the hot new look my jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches but it was great fabric maybe it had a what you thought you can buy in england what you thought Cary grant was wearing and fred astaire you could not walk into a store and buy you couldn't buy you couldn't walk into a store no stores had that when i came along the business was not at all like the things that i made you could not buy you couldn't find it and they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional and sense that they had a, they weren't wild. But they were, they were, it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's, you couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. Now a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, England. They would get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket, it had a flare on the side vents. So one thing is the product. The other thing is, is where it goes. A man gets dressed, he goes, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes in and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, ele- he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself. And he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place what I did was see these things the hacking jacket represented a life that I loved it was old England and they look great I don't know what it was at the time but I said you know that hack I'd love to have that I couldn't find it in the store I said where can I get that where can I get it and you couldn't get it anywhere so I said I'd like to make that so I made it so you can wear it it's a sport jacket and these things they sound vague possibly because they're part of our vernacular today but It it didn't exist.
4: And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country, from selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's.
2: And when we come back, you won't believe this story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love. And boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories. our american stories and we return to ralph lauren's story we left off with him entering his first sale
4: with a pretty big client in new york city bloomingdale's we bring you back to the late 1960s and a young handsome and confident ralph lauren arrives in his sports car to a meeting with bloomingdale's eager to strike a deal but not too eager He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former
5: president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed the sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name.
3: It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be. This is what I like.
4: An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Trout.
5: I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year
4: with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties. And soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the Thai industry into upscale menswear, women's wear. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
4: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumpaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in.
6: At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers.
4: Lifestyle and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time Magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor.
3: At the same time as I was on the cover of Time magazine, I knew Time magazine was coming out, and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time magazine, and the two, the two distances of life, the fact that that on one here I hit the heights of one side. the other side the impossible thing happened on Time magazine and the impossible thing happened on brain tumor how could I get a brain tumor where'd that come from where'd that come from I look great where'd that come from you know that happens to somebody else Time magazine happens to somebody else I was split right in half so that alone was an incredible contrast in my life just my life has been an incredible contrast and growing up and go in my career the heights was so hard to even deal with in a funny way so uh, the brain tumor coming along uh, fortunately it was not it was benign the experience of looking at my wife and my family I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation I remember seeing my daughter and my son were very little at the time we were in this big open space and I said, I can't believe this I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and looking at them as if
4: I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life.
3: I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always gonna be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, Uh, I'm not groping in the world, trying to be something. I
4: know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff a close business associate of Ralph Lauren.
1: There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar.
3: Remember the princess? I got her.
4: (laughs) Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand, and opened up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style, a style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid.
3: I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the the, the, the Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a, you think of certain um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always liked country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes in a way that um, had, a, had a something to them.
4: Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds.
3: If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, a, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing
4: like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be.
3: You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing? on these lists, what am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing for me. It's not, I'm doing it, I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't, it didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain to and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A fellow I work with who came at the office said, it was from another company, he said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and they're so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be.
2: And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and now we take a look back to the American Revolution and to an author whose anonymous publication became the voice of the rebellion. The author, Thomas Paine. The publication,
7: Common Sense. Take it away, Jesse. Thomas Paine wrote the book on American independence, helping to set the stage for the American Revolution. As one of our founding fathers, this English-born political activist, philosopher, and badass revolutionary was known as a corset maker by trade, a journalist by profession, and propagandist by inclination. Paine migrated to the British American colonies in 1774 with the help of Benjamin Franklin. Virtually every rebel read or listened to a reading of his pamphlet called Common Sense, which argued for independence from British rule. Here's Thomas Paine with the introduction to Common Sense as Anonymous.
8: The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances hath and will arise which are not local but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind...
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
9: Sorry.
8: the laying a country desolate with fire and sword, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind, and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth, is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling, of which class, regardless of party censure, is the author. Who the author of this production is, is wholly unnecessary to the public as the object for attention is the doctrine itself, not the man. Yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party, and under no sort of influence, public or private, but the influence of reason and principle.
7: Throughout the 1760s and 70s, people were getting tired of British taxation and rule. Protests were falling on deaf ears which led to the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party and a boycott on British goods. Yet after all that drama, a lot of colonialists still had allegiances and nostalgic warm fuzzy feelings for the motherland. That became more of an unpopular position when British Parliament banned all trade with the colonies in December of 1775. But still. Loyalists remained, and Thomas Paine was calling them out.
8: The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France. With this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of Parliament. For the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle, not more just. Wherefore, laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is, that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people, and not to the constitution of the government that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary, for as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice and as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife, so any prepossession in favor of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one. Thomas Paine had
7: sold nearly 120,000 copies of Common Sense from the time it was published in January to four months later in April of 1776. The argument for independence had reached a tipping point. Thomas Paine, would provide the extra push. But what exactly was the main argument of this publication? Professor of History and American Studies at Yale, Joanne Freeman, has the answer.
9: The main argument of the pamphlet did three things. So number one, it it basically refuted the prevailing ideas against independence. It went one step further and demonstrated the necessity of independence and how possible it was. And it demonstrated the stupidity and utter uselessness not only of the English monarchy, but just of monarchies
8: generally.
7: In fact, Thomas Paine hated monarchies so much that we're still talking about his rants and raves against them
8: to this day. In the early ages of the world, according to the scripture chronology, there were no kings, the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark, for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them, which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust.
7: Back in the day, in 1776, those were fighting words. Here again is Yale professor Joanne Freeman with some context on what Thomas Paine's common sense accomplished at the time.
9: First, the crown was the last remaining emotional and political link that was really tying the colonies to the mother country. By this point, the colonists had lost faith in Parliament. So Paine certainly knew that if he could strike at this last linchpin of colonial sentiment, he could advance the cause of independence. Second, if Paine could destroy the legitimacy, not only of King George, but also of the idea of monarchy overall, then the English Constitution's legitimacy would suffer as well, once again, hopefully, opening the way for independence. And then, third, I think equally important, rhetorically, Paine had a really good writer's sense of pacing, and he knew that if he opened this pamphlet with this really dramatic challenge, to all of the prevailing assumptions about government. And if he turned all of these assumptions on their head, he would pull readers into his pamphlet and into his argument immediately and hold them there for the center of his argument, which was the second section of the pamphlet. And that is really the part that focuses on independence. Independence at this point was a topic that people didn't discuss openly. They didn't talk about it in public. If discussed at all, it was discussed privately among friends, because basically it amounted to treason. Paine's dramatic introduction opened the way for him to introduce this really controversial topic. If the English Constitution lacked legitimacy, well what next? And his answer obviously is, well, independence, the obvious solution. Which then brings us to the third section of the pamphlet and that is the future. Paine concludes the pamphlet by discussing just what Americans could institute to replace the English Constitution, Like what kind of government they might be able to construct to replace what they were stripping away.
7: They were stripping away the tyranny of British rule, word by word. Thomas Paine was the
8: voice of the rebellion. Arms as the last resource decide this contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. When we return, more from
7: Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and the American Revolution. This is our American story.
2: we return to the story of the American Revolution and Thomas Paine's Common
7: Sense. Thomas Paine's Common Sense was published in January of 1776 and a bestseller by April. It had turned colonial nostalgia for Britain into a demand for independence. But Common Sense wasn't only a radical condemnation of the status quo, but the
8: very definition of the American spirit. Here again, Thomas Paine. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fractured now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. While Payne was able to paint
7: vivid pictures with his words, he was also very direct on how the country should move
8: forward. Our plan is commerce, and that well attended to will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders.
7: Thomas Paine made a strong argument against men of passive tempers,
8: who wanted reconciliation with Britain. Men of passive tempers looked somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, and still hoping for the best, are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind, bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then are you only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, Hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on, or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then are you not a judge of those who have? But if you have, and still can shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy of the name of husband, father, friend, or lover? And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. Here again
7: for a recap on the influence that this work by Thomas Paine had on colonial Americans is Yale professor Joanne Friedman.
9: The power of the pamphlet wasn't just in its argument or in specific points of argument, but rather it was in the way that it reversed prevailing assumptions. Paine forced readers to consider a whole new way of looking at the impending crisis and actually at the entire imperial system. He laid bare assumptions that had led colonists to resist independence, and then by exposing these biases and holding them up to scorn, he forced people to think beyond what they had thought before.
7: Thomas Paine was challenging the way things had always been regarding the survival of liberty. Professor Friedman describes the mindset of those who remained in support of the old way of doing things in contrast to what Paine was writing in Common Sense.
9: So basically the old paradigm had been liberty can survive among brutal and self-interested men only through a balance Of institutionalized forces so no one can monopolize the power of the state and rule without opposition. So monarchy, nobility and the people have an equal right to share in the struggle for power. Complexity in government in this sense is a good thing. Simplicity allows for monopolization. Well, Paine argues complexity is not a virtue in government. It simply makes it impossible to tell who is at fault. Paine charged that the complexity of the British government was designed to serve the monarchy and the nobility, that the king did nothing but wage war and hand out gifts to his followers, and that this entire idea of British constitutional institutional balance was a fraud.
8: O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe, Asia and Africa have long expelled her, Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. O oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum from mankind. Youth is the seed-time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and the friendship which is formed in misfortune, are of all others the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. But our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, that is, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First they had a king, and then a form of government, whereas the Articles or Charter of Government should be formed first, and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the errors of other nations, let us learn wisdom and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end.
7: In Part 4 of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, he specifically calls for a Declaration of Independence, a declaration that would come to fruition just months after this pamphlet
8: was first published. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not, but many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence. Some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel. To step in as mediators and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on forever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between britain and america because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences thirdly while we profess ourselves the subjects of britain we must in the eye of foreign nations be considered as rebels the present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects we on the spots can solve the paradox but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her. At the same time, assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until by an independence we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. Thomas Paine
7: became the voice of American independence when he published Common Sense. He turned men and women who were sympathetic to the status quo into rebellious, freedom-fighting Americans so that future generations could enjoy this glorious bounty that we call America. And this is Our American Stories.
8: This is
2: Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thoughts segment. And today, for the hour, we're going to celebrate in honor of the life of Barbara Pierce, better known as Barbara Bush. And we're going to start with Barbara Bush's words first. Back in 1990, a handful of Wellesley seniors protested the fact that she was going to be the commencement speaker at this all-women's college. They argued that Mrs. Bush was notable only because of her husband. That's when the First Lady sprang into action. Here's how she started her speech.
10: More than ten years ago, when I was invited here to talk about our experiences in the People's Republic of China, I was struck by both the natural beauty of your campus and the spirit of this place. Wellesley, you see, is not just a place, but an idea an experiment in excellence in which diversity is not just tolerated, but is embraced. The essence of this spirit was captured in a moving speech about tolerance given last year by a student body president of one of your sister colleges. She related the story by Robert Fulgham about a young pastor finding himself in charge of some very energetic children, hits upon the game called Giants, Wizards, and Dwarfs. You have to decide now, the pastor instructed the children, which you are, a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. At that, a small girl, tugging at his pants leg asks, but where do the mermaids stand? And the pastor tells her there are no mermaids. And she says, oh, yes, there are. I am a mermaid. Now this little girl knew what she was, and she was not about to give up on either her identity or the game. She intended to take her place wherever mermaids fit into the scheme of things. Where do the mermaids stand? All of those who are different, those who do not fit the boxes and the pigeonholes. Answer that question, wrote Fulgham, and you can build a school, a nation, or a whole world As that very wise young woman said, diversity, like anything worth having, requires effort. Effort to learn about and respect difference, to be compassionate with one another, to cherish our own identity, and to accept unconditionally the same in others. I hope that many of you will consider making three very special choices. The first is to believe in something larger than yourself, to get involved in some of the big ideas of our time. I chose literacy because I honestly believe that if more people could read, write, and comprehend, we would be that much closer to solving so many of the problems that plague our nation and our society. And early on, I made another choice, which I hope you'll make as well. Whether you're talking about education career or service. You're talking about life and life really must have joy. It's supposed to be fun. One of the reasons I made the most important decision of my life to marry George Bush is because he made me laugh. It's true, sometimes we laugh through our tears, but that shared laughter has been one of our strongest bonds. Find the joy in life because as Ferris Bueller said on his day off, (laughs) life moves pretty fast, and you don't stop and look around once a while, you're gonna miss it. I'm not gonna tell George you clap more for Ferris than you clap for George. The third choice that must not be missed is to cherish your human connections, your relationships with family and friends. For several years, you've had impressed upon you the importance to your career of dedication and hard work. And of course, that's true. But as important as your obligations as a doctor, a lawyer, a business leader will be, you are a human being first. And those human connections with spouses, with children, with friends are the most important investment you will ever make. (laughs) At the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal you will regret time not spent with a husband, a child, a friend, or a parent. For over 50 years, it was said that the winner of Wellesley's annual hoop race would be the first to get married. Now, they say, the winner will be the first to become a CEO. Both both of those stereotypes show too little tolerance for those who want to know where the mermaid stands. So, uh, so I want to offer a new legend. The winner of the hoop race will be the first to realize her dream, not society's dreams, her own personal dream. And who... <laughs> somewhere out in this audience may even be someone who will one day follow in my footsteps and preside over the White House as the president's spouse and I wish him well
2: and there you have it the heart, the soul, the character it's all there listen to those kids cheers folks some of them didn't want her there wife to one president mother to another Only one other woman in American history can make that claim, Abigail Adams. And when we come back, you're going to hear from people who knew Barbara Bush, family, friends, and loved ones, celebrating the life of Barbara Bush. This is Our American Stories, our final thoughts.
10: I'm a huge believer in a loving God. I pray, George and I pray every night, out loud and sometimes we fight over whose turn it is but we do and uh, I have no fear of death which is a huge comfort because we're getting darn close and I don't have a fear of death for my precious George or for myself because I know
11: that there is a great God and I'm not worried about
2: This is Our American Stories, and we return to the celebration of Barbara Bush's life, our final thoughts, our, and her life deserves it, folks. And before we get to the funeral service and some of the speakers who spoke at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, we spoke to one of her close friends, and that's Mika Mosbacher. And Mika was the spouse of Bob Mosbacher, one of the Bush's best friends, and he also happened to be President Bush's Commerce Secretary. And she shared with us the story of her trip with the Bushes to Saudi Arabia.
11: I will never forget, we were flying to Riyadh to King Abdullah's palace. They had a red carpet out in front of the plane, so this would have been in 2000 after he was president. But they had a formal welcoming ceremony. And because I have long blonde hair, and was very sensitive to the customs, I had brought along a black scarf as a head covering to be respectful to the culture. I reached for it, put it on my hair, and Barbara said, take it off. And I said, but it's disrespectful. She said, no, you're with my husband. We're Americans. He was the president of the free world. Take it off. (laughs) And in her own quiet way, she telegraphed to me that she was an individual and very much an American woman who was embracing the freedoms that we have in our society. And at a luncheon where it was only men, because as is customary in the Middle East is the women eat in a separate area from the men, And Barbara had a seat at the head table, and I was there as well, and we were the only females in the room. And the respect that they had for her was so evident. She held court, and it was always interesting to see her with her husband because he has long time referred to her as the enforcer, meaning that she was the stronger one of the couple. And I noticed that any time she was in the room, She had a very calming influence on her husband, who really did rely on her quiet courage and her wise words, and he very much considered her a partner. Even though many, many of the news stories have portrayed her as more of the traditional wife and mother, she was very much involved in guiding the president.
2: And Mika remembered those words like they'd happened, well, just yesterday. We're American, and my husband was the leader of the free world. And now we take you to the funeral itself at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, and to her son, who was the governor of Florida. And here, well, he addresses the large crowd and talks about his mom.
6: As I stand here today to share a few words about my mom, I feel her looming presence behind me. And I know exactly what she's thinking right now. Jeb, keep it short. Don't drag this out. People have already heard enough remarks already. And most of all, don't get weepy. Remember, I've spent a dec- de- decades laughing and living a life with these people. And that is true. Barbara Bush filled our lives with laughter and joy. And in the case of her family, she was our teacher and role model on how to live a life of purpose and meaning. On behalf of our family, we want to thank the thousands and thousands of expressions of condolence and love for our precious mother. We want to thank mom's caregivers for their compassionate care in the last months of her life. And we want to thank all that are gathered here to celebrate the life of Barbara Bush. Now, it is appropriate to express gratitude because we learned to do that at a very early age. You see, our mom was our first and most important teacher. Sit up, look people in the eye, Please say please and thank you, do your homework, quit whining and stop complaining, eat your broccoli. Yes, Dad, she said that. <laughs> the little things we learned became habits and they led to bigger things like be kind, always tell the truth, never disparage anyone, Serve others. Treat everyone as you would want to be treated. And love your God with your heart and soul. What a blessing to have a teacher like that 24-7. Now, to be clear, her students weren't perfect. That's an understatement. Mom got us through our difficult times with consistent, take it to the bank, unconditional, but tough love. She called her style a benevolent dictatorship, But honestly, it wasn't always benevolent. (laughs) When our children got a little older, they would spend more time visiting their Gampy and Ganny. All it would take would be one one week. And when they came home, all of a sudden, they were pitching in around the house. They didn't fight as much. And they were actually nice to be with. (laughs) I attribute this to the unbridled fear of the Ganny lecture and the habit-forming effects of better behavior taking hold. Even in her 90s, mom could strike fear into her grandchildren, nephews, nieces, and her children if someone didn't behave. There were no safe spaces or microaggressions allowed with Barbara Pierce Bush. (laughs) But in the end, every grandchild knew their Ganny loved them. We learned a lot more from our mom and our Ganny. We learned not to take ourselves too seriously. We learned that humor is a joy that should be shared. Some of my greatest memories are participating in our family dinners with Mom when mom would get into it, most of the time with George W., as you might imagine, and having us all laughing to tears. We learned to strive to be genuine and authentic by the best role model in the world. Her authentic plastic pearls, her not culling her hair. By the way, she was beautiful till the day she died. Her hugging of an HIV AIDS patient at a time when her own mother wouldn't do it. Her standing by her man with a little rhyming poetry in the 1984 election. In a thousand other ways, Barbara Pierce Bush was real and that's why people admired her and loved her so. Finally, our family has had a front row seat for the most amazing love story. Through a multitude of moves from New Haven, to Odessa, to Ventura, to Bakersfield, to Compton, to Midland, to Houston, to D.C., to New York, to D.C., to Beijing, to D.C., to Houston, to D.C., back to Houston and Bunkport. Their love was a constant in our lives. My dad is a phenomenal letter writer, and he would write mom on their wedding anniversaries, which totaled an amazing 73 years. Here's one of them written on January 6, 1994. Will you marry me? Oops, I forgot, we did that 49 years ago. <laughs> I was very happy on that day in 1945, but I'm even happier today. You have given me joy that few men know. You have made our boys into men by bawling them out and then, right away, by loving them. You've helped Darrow be the sweetest, greatest daughter in the whole wide world. I've climbed perhaps the highest mountain in the world, but even that cannot hold a candle to being Barbara's husband. Mom used to tell me, now George, don't walk ahead. Little did she know I was only trying to keep up, keep up with Barbara Pierce from Rye, New York. I love you. The last time my mom went into the hospital, I think dad got sick on purpose so that he could be with her. That's my theory at least, because literally a day later he showed up with an illness. He came into her room when she was sleeping and held her hand. His hair was standing straight up, He had on a mask to improve his breathing. He was wearing a hospital gown. In other words, he looked like hell. Mom opened her eyes and said, my God, George, you are devastatingly handsome. Every nurse, doctor, staffer had to run to the hallway because they all started crying. I hope you can see why we thank our mom and our dad, our teachers and models for our entire family, and for many others. Finally, the last time I was with her, um, I asked her about dying. Was she ready to go? Was she sad? Without missing a beat, she said, Jeb, I believe in Jesus, and he is my savior. I don't want to leave your dad, but I know I'll be in a beautiful place. Mom, we look forward to being with you and Robin and all of God's children. We love you.
2: And that was Jeb Bush, and he didn't get weepy. He held it back. My goodness, those words that George Bush wrote to his bride that the sun read, you have given me joy, few men will know. When we come back celebrating the life of Barbara Bush, an American original, here on Our American Stories, our final thought segment.
10: to your children and you must hug your children and you must love your children. Your success as a family our success as a society depends not on what happens in the White House but on what happens inside your house.
2: And that was Barbara Bush speaking at Wellesley College and no truer words have been spoken and that is that the fate of the nation depends on the fate of the American family. And my goodness, the love you heard from Jeb and the love you heard all through this service at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston. She gave out love, love came back, and we're celebrating the life of Barbara Bush here on Our American Stories, the final thought segment. And now we turn to Susan Garrett Baker, a friend of Barbara Bush, wife of former Secretary of State,
0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited
5: by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Think about life without that force of nature that our very special friend was Barbara Bush. She was smart, strong, fun, and feisty, even sometimes making the headline she regretted. The world saw that and, like we did, they admired and loved her for it. The world saw a remarkable and selfless companion to her beloved husband, George. It was extraordinary how she managed their rambunctious household in 29 different homes in 17 cities. At the same time, she fully participated in his amazing career including too many political campaigns to count, starting from the time he was chairman of the Harris County Republican Party to becoming president of the United States. Once back in Houston, they continued their dedication to volunteerism and exhausting rounds of good works. Rather than bemoan their many moves, Barbara just laughed and said, One thing I can say about George, he may not be able to keep a job, but he's certainly not boring. (laughs) The world saw a compassionate but strict mother who inspired her children with tender love and firm lessons, and when needed, the fear of God. When we saw her and George together with their five children, with their 17 grandchildren, and seven great-grands, we knew they represented the very best. As we watched their brood rise crack with one another or work together on a volunteer program or campaign, we thought how wonderful it would be if more families could be so cohesive. Barbara, the tough but loving enforcer, was the secret sauce of this extraordinary family. The world respects Barbara Bush's deep passion and great effectiveness in equipping those who cannot read with the skill to do so. We all celebrate her vision and tenacious dedication to literacy. Of course, the world has seen Barbara's many public contributions. But what the world may not have seen is what an amazing, caring, and beautiful friend that Barr was to so many of us. When Jim and I first arrived in Washington in 1975, I was overwhelmed trying to manage our newly blended family of seven children in an intimidating environment. Fortunately, Barr took me under her wing. She encouraged me, she offered suggestions, and she invited us to lunch almost every Sunday lunch. Those hamburger lunches that always ended with an incredible dessert included famous personalities as well as many unknowns whom they loved. And this really helped us become part of the Washington world. When we returned to Washington in 1981, George was Vice President and Jim was White House Chief of Staff. Barr encouraged me to use Jim's position in the Reagan administration to promote the causes that I cared about. This really pushed me out of my comfort zone, but I followed her wise lead. She supported my efforts to help the homeless by holding meetings in the vice president's house. What a blessing! This meant that many came who otherwise would have not given our group the time of day. She also hosted controversial homeless advocates, so we could help people understand about the plight of those who live on the street even though that was not a popular position in the administration. Barr taught us volumes about who our neighbors are and how to love them. Because of their own tragic loss of daughter Robin, Barber knew how to comfort those who were suffering. My Jim was among them as she helped him during his first wife's losing battle with cancer. Barbara's motivation to help others was never about herself, but about giving love and support to those in need. Her friendship didn't stop with people she knew. Barbara Bush was pen pals with people she had never met. She corresponded for several years with a young girl who named her Heifer after Barbara. The child sent frequent updates on the bovine Barbara Bush, which competed in the Houston Rodeo and Livestock Show one year and finished in eighth place. (laughs) I was sorry for my little friend, Barbara said later, but was slightly relieved as I am not sure I could have stood the headlines, Barbara Bush wins the fat stock show. About friendship, Barr said, the most important yardstick of your success will be how you treat other people, your family, your friends, and coworkers, and even strangers you meet along the way. She was the gold standard of what it meant to be a friend because she was motivated by the desire to show God's love to each and every one of his children that she met. C.S. Lewis once defined friendship as the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. Bar's beauty was evident in every day of her life. Saying goodbye to our special friend is painful, but it's a great comfort and knowing that we will see this good and faithful servant again one day. Thank you, dear Lord, for bringing Barbara Pierce Bush, this vibrantly beautiful human being into the world, and especially for bringing her friendship into our lives. Amen.
2: And amen to that, and we can all hope to hear such words at our own funerals Again, that was Susan Garrett Baker, a friend of Barbara Bush's and the wife of former Secretary of State James Baker. When we come back, John Meacham, George Bush's biographer, with his terrific eulogy, celebrating the life of Barbara Bush, an American original, here on Our American Stories, our final thoughts segment. We conclude our Final Thoughts segment celebrating the life of Barbara Bush with John Meacham, presidential historian and George H. W. Bush biographer. His book, Destiny and Power, is a classic. Here's how John Meacham started things off.
12: About a decade ago, I was on the Washington Mall for the National Book Festival on my way to give a talk about a book I'd written when a woman ran up to me which doesn't happen enough, believe me. And she said, oh my God, it's you. And I said, well, yes, you know, kind of hard to argue with. She said, I just admire you so much. I just, I I love your books. You've meant a lot to me and really to my family. Would you wait right here? I want to go buy your new book and have you sign it. And I said, yes, ma'am, and I stood there And let us confess, in this ecclesiastical setting, I was feeling kind of full of myself when she came back with John Grisham's latest novel. (laughs) It gets worse. That had been on a Saturday in September, and I was on my way to Maine to see the 41st President of the United States and Mrs. Bush. And I was feeling rather sorry for myself. And I told this story, and Mrs. Bush looked across the table, looked me in the eye, and I was thinking, here comes some motherly sympathy. (laughs) That's called telegraphing. Uh, Here it comes. And she said, well, how do you think poor John Grisham would feel? You know? He's a very handsome man. So I was 0 for 2. But it was a fair and funny point, as were so many of the points that Barbara Pierce Bush made in her long and consequential life. Known as Barbara, as Bar, as Mom, as Mother, as Ganny, as the Silver Fox, and as the Enforcer, she was candid and comforting, steadfast and straightforward, honest and loving. Barbara Bush was the first lady of the greatest generation. As the fiance and then the wife of a World War II naval aviator, she waited and prayed in the watches of the night. During the war she worked at a nuts and bolts factory in Port Chester, New York and she joined George H.W. Bush in the great adventure of post-war Texas, moving to distant Odessa in 1948, 70 summers ago. From Rye, Mrs. Bush's mother, would send boxes of soap and detergent to her daughter on the grounds that they probably didn't have that kind of thing in West Texas. <laughs> Mrs. Bush raised a family, endured the loss of a daughter to leukemia, and kept everything and everyone together. And as the wife of one president and the mother of another, she holds a distinction that belongs to only one other American in the long history of the Republic, Abigail Adams, who was present at the creation. From the White House to Camp David to Walker's Point, in hours of war and of peace, of tumult and of calm, the Bushes governed in a spirit of congeniality, of civility, and of grace, instinctively generous. Barbara and George Bush put country above party, the common good above political gain, and service to others above the settling of scores. The couple had met at a Christmas dance in Greenwich in 1941, not quite three weeks after Pearl Harbor. She was wearing a red and green holiday dress, he endeavored to get introduced. She was 16. He was 17. He was the only boy she ever kissed. Her children, she remarked, always wanted to throw up when they heard that. (laughs) In a letter to Barbara during the war, George H.W. Bush wrote, I love you, precious with all my heart. And to know that you love me means my life. How often I have thought about the immeasurable joy that will be ours someday. How lucky our children will be to have a mother like you. And if you ask them, they'll be the first to say they were. I once asked President Bush if he had known, even in the beginning, how resilient Mrs. Bush would be. No, he said, tears coming to his eyes. And he went on, she's the rock of the family, the leader of the family. I kind of float above it all. But she's always there, always there for me and for the kids. Just amazing, debutante from Rye, willing to make our own way, have adventures. Wasn't always easy for her, but never a word of complaint. Just love and strength. Opinions too, of course, lots of those. She was strength itself. And if her tongue were sometimes sharp, she was as honest with herself as she was with all of us. When she once unwisely described a female political opponent of her husband's as a word that rhymed with rich, She reported that her family had begun calling her the Poet Laureate. (laughs) And she loved the story of how when her eldest son, the 43rd President of the United States, took up painting, his instructor asked him if he'd ever used the color Burnt Umber. No, 43 replied, but he did remember that from his mother's cooking. brings down the house she would say approvingly. Mother and son needle each other to the end. In her final days while the 43rd president was visiting Mrs. Bush asked one of her doctors if she'd like to know why George W had turned out the way he had. And then she announced I smoked and drank while I was pregnant. She was a point of light In 1989, when many Americans lived in ignorance about HIV AIDS, Mrs. Bush went to a home for infected infants and hugged the children there, as well as an adult male patient. The images sent a powerful message, one of compassion, of love, and of acceptance. She believed literacy a fundamental civil and human right and gave the cause her all at a televised event commemorating the bicentennial of the Constitution, Mrs. Bush met a man named J.T. Pace, the 63-year-old son of a former sharecropper. Mr. Pace, who had only recently become literate, was scheduled to read the Constitution's preamble aloud. Backstage, he was nervous. Mrs. Bush asked if it would help if they read it together on the broadcast. Mr. Pace agreed. Soon the two of them stood on stage reading in unison. As Mr. Pace grew comfortable Mrs. Bush lowered her voice and lowered it again and then again until at last J.T. Pace was reading entirely on his own. He wept and he read, supported by Barbara Bush, who stood to his side, now silent. Her work was done when his voice spoke of the unending search for a more perfect union. J.T. Pace had found his voice, not least because Barbara Bush had lent him her heart. Just last summer, on a sunny day, on the Bush's porch in Maine, talk turned to World War II and that terrible Saturday, September 2nd, 1944, when Lieutenant Junior Grade George Herbert Walker Bush was shot down on a bombing raid over Chichijima. Two of his crewmates didn't make it, becoming casualties of war. Lieutenant Bush parachuted out of the bomber, plunged into the sea, came up to the surface, flopped onto a life raft, and waited, scared and retching. Had young Bush been captured by the Japanese, he would have been held captive on an island that was home to horrific war crimes, including cannibalism. Bar, he'd say in later years, I could have been an hors d'oeuvre. In truth, it had been the closest of calls. George, Mrs. Bush said in Maine last July, in their great old age, lost in reminiscence. You must have been saved for a reason. I know there had to be a reason. President Bush sat silently for the briefest of moments, then raised that big left hand and pointed his finger across the table at his wife. You, he said hoarsely, you were the reason.
2: And that was John Meacham and he said it so best. She was the first lady of the greatest generation and all the things that means. And again, we've been celebrating the life of Barbara Bush, an American original Our final thought segment here on Our American Stories.